Greetings. Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company. I'm Monica S. Kubler, and joining me in the Library of the Damned studio today for a rare in-person recording session is my co-host, Sefra Jerome. Hi, Sefra. Hi, Monica. Welcome to the studio. We don't get into this room very often. Wow, this is pretty impressive. Look at all the cool stuff in here. Walls and walls of books and tchotchkes and pictures. And wow, you've had quite the interesting collection here, Monica. (laughs) It is the Library of the Damned. It lives up to its name where you can sit at the studio desk and worry that one of three floor-to-ceiling bookshelves may just crash into you at any moment. Crushing you. watch for that. Anyways, we hope all you out there in listener land have had a wonderful holiday season and... Of course, we're thrilled to be back in a new year with brand new episodes for you. Unfortunately, however, today's episode is going to be a bit of a sad one. On Wednesday, January 24th, the world of horror fiction lost one of its greats, Jack Ketchum, after a long battle with cancer. Ketchum, of course, was a pen name, and just one of several. His friends and colleagues knew him better as Dallas Mayer, and today, on this special memorial episode of the Great Lakes Horror Company, We're going to look at his body of work and the person who inspired so many people to post personal pictures and stories about him in the hours following his passing. One thing uh, Dallas would certainly have to say to all of us is that he does not want us to be sad and maudlin about his passing. He would want us to celebrate, drink some scotch, get our asses back in our chairs and our fingers on the keyboards, and drink to him. He was one of those people that embraced every single day as... A brand new day and he lived life to the fullest more than anyone I ever knew so let's have a toast to Dallas Jack Ketchum and here we are we have some some real alcohol in the uh, library of the damn studio also something we never do on this show but uh, to Dallas to Dallas and now of course there is no better way that you can remember an author or a creator of any sort than to continue to read their work, talk about their work, share their work, and inspire others to pick up and read their work. So, for those of you out there who may never have read a Jack Ketchum novel, before we continue with our memorial episode, we've got four that Sefra and I consider to be the very best place to start if you need a crash course on his brand of extreme horror. And that is a bit of a warning. Yes, uh, Jack Ketchum books are not for the squeamish or the faint of heart. Um, They are definitely an acquired taste, and yet he is also a literary genius. So if even you may feel squeamish or whatever, certainly at least try to read some of his words because he really was a poet. Now, the first book on our You Really Have to Read This List is a book that was introduced to me as a rite of passage book. Basically, hey, Monica, if you can get through this, and I'm sure a lot of you already know what that book is going to be, and that book is The Girl Next Door, which, of course, was loosely based on the Sylvia Likens murder of 1965, in which a teenage girl was brutally tortured and abused by the woman charged with giving her care, as well as a whole slew of other kids from around the neighborhoods. It, uh, it's an extremely disturbing real-life case, and I'm not going to mince any words here. The novel is equally disturbing. Um, when I did read it, I remember I got to a point near the climax where 
I think I closed the book and I shoved it under the bed and my boyfriend at the time, who now years later is my husband, woke up and I looked at him and he, he was like, what's wrong? What's up? And I was like, don't touch me. Don't touch me for like the next two hours. I don't, I, I, I think I just need to go and stand in the shower for a really, really long time. And that's the kind of book that The Girl Next Door is. Um, it's go. It's a challenging read, not in its difficulty, but in its subject matter. And But I think a book everyone should read, especially um, if you think that there's nothing scary in horror anymore. Yeah, that's uh, one heck of a book. It was uh, very disturbing. Um, I knew someone's phone was going to go off. Apologies. <laughs> Here we were talking about that, how something in this in this crazy office was going to bing, and there it is, my phone. Sorry, folks. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> kind of kind of scared me because we're talking about creepy things now. It's like, who's at the door? <laughs> But yeah, that one thing about uh, Jack Ketchum's work is that yeah, it, uh, most of it is very disturbing, and uh, uh, most of his work too was actually ripped from headlines. Um, he'd talk a bit about that uh, when he's on panels and stuff, about how he'd read a, a headline like a news article, you know, like the girl next door, and then he'd put his own spin on the story. Um, when what the very first book I read. Uh, by Jack Ketchum is a book called Red and if you're an animal lover it will destroy you <laughs> yet you must read it <laughs> and uh, it's basically a revenge tale about a man whose dog was murdered and yeah I don't really want to say much more than that but um, it, it's uh, you, you really need to read this book it was the, like I said the first book I read and uh, the second book I read uh, we'll, we'll get to in a minute now, of course, while we're going to spend a lot of this podcast talking about Dallas's novels, he was a very accomplished short story writer. He's won awards for his short stories. So the third book on our You Must Read These Ketchum Books list is Peaceable Kingdom, which was originally published by Leisure. It won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Collection the year it came out. And I consider it absolutely the best intro to Ketchum's shorter work. Now, I did a quick uh, Google around the internet while we were preparing this show, and I will tell you, to get that book in print, is quite expensive. You're looking at at least $55 US. But, and here's a big but, you can snag the Kindle edition for only $5. So, no excuse, people. Get an e-reader. Get this book, you won't be disappointed. Now, on to Sephra and number four. Number four is Off Season. Again, um, I bought this book when I bought Red at a convention after I met uh, Jack Ketchum. And Off Season is probably, you know, if you're a bit of a horror fan, you've probably heard about some of these cannibal stories. Well, this was, you know, the, the original one, the king of the cannibal stories. It's grisly and... Uh, yeah, and now with this story, um, it had a bit of his history because it was so gruesome when it came out that the the publisher had changed it around. They took out some parts and, and all that. But then uh, at the Overlook Connection, which publishes a lot of special editions, they put 
the book back together as Dallas had originally intended it and you and you can get that at the Overlook Connection and yeah I highly recommend this book and then there's a sequel to it Offspring um, so if you want more cannibals just keep on going <laughs> yum yum but yeah again disturbing book and will haunt you forever as it did me we were talking earlier off mic about why Ketchum's novels never really hit huge in the mainstream and Seth do you think that was in part due to the violence and other extreme subject matter? I mean, Dallas certainly wrote about monsters, but more often than not, they were human monsters, and we were witnessing the monstrous, the monstrosity of humanity in his work. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot over the last 20 or 30 years, really, um, because Dallas certainly had the literary talent to be, you know, a rock star in the field. I suspect a large part of it was his choice of sub subject matter. He was too good of a writer and to and the extremity the extremes that he would take his characters it, it's just mind-blowing even though he was often jump boarding off uh, a true story of something horrific and perhaps that's part of the problem a lot of his stories deal with um, you know women abuse and rape and things like that you know cannibalism uh, killing animals and all those sorts of things and I was thinking too about how in the 80s uh, we did have the splatterpunk movement and certainly he was often considered part of it you know we had Skip Inspector and Phil Nutman and David Scow and all those guys and I was really into reading all of them I really loved the splatterpunk movement and it was influential on my own work um, but I was thinking too when we were talking off mic that perhaps uh, because Skip Inspector and the others often chose to wrote, write about vampires and werewolves, you know, and the rock stars and, and all these kinds of things, um, that maybe because that was more fantastical, it was easier for an audience to digest than the extremities that Dallas would take us through. And uh, maybe editors and publishers uh, just, even though they were publishing him, maybe they didn't give the same push. I don't really know how the marketing aspect of publishing worked back in the 80s, but certainly, uh, you know, we do know he did have a couple of his books in mass market, but they certainly didn't sell as they should have. In my opinion, I think he should have been the best-selling author right up there with Stephen King, and Stephen King had his back, too. So it's, a, it's interesting to me how it never really happened in the mainstream for him. And I do, I mean, I do wonder if some of it was some of those early marketing uh, decisions, because as we've previously mentioned on this podcast, The Girl Next Door, of course, um, was released with that ridiculous skeletal <laughs> cheerleader cover. Okay, I'm going to, skeletal cheerleaders say nothing about a young woman who is held captive in a basement and beaten and branded and sexually, I think sexually mutilated out some at one point. Um, I mean, if you go into a bookstore and pick up a book with a skeletal cheerleader on the cover and then get that, that's... Uh, that's not good marketing. <laughs> no, that's, that's lifelong trauma, I think, because mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole different kind of horror. Yeah, like cheerleader skeletons, that, that is a whole different horror. You know, it's Buffy or something, but oh my Lord. And you and then you end up reading The Girl Next Door. Yeah, it, your brain would melt. Yeah, something, something about that <laughs> says pulpy fun, not... <laughs> not this will change your brain forever. 
<laughs> so yeah. I wonder if it was part of that. But I mean, his books were, you know, they had great covers. They were always well represented at leisure. Yeah, once he got to leisure, but then, you know, leisure died shortly after. So it's hard to know how that would have gone for uh, any of us who are leisure authors because leisure did uh, suddenly shut down um, in the mid 2000s. And by then, the splatterpunk movement itself was over, but like I said, Dallas was kind of there, but not because he was so literary and uh, well-spoken, well-read, and a very intelligent man. Not that any of the other writers weren't, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> so what I mean. Now, all that said, I think, you know, it does bear saying that uh, Dallas had a sizable amount of success getting his work onto movie screens. Yes. I mean, quite a few of his novels and short stories were ultimately adapted for the screen, um, including, uh, here's a list of films, 2006, The Lost, 2007's The Girl Next Door, 2008's Red, 2009's Offspring, and 2011's The Woman. Out of those films, he wrote the screenplay for Offspring and co-wrote the screenplay for The Woman with co-author Lucky McGee. And interestingly... Like other horror authors that we know and love, he had cameos in a lot of these movies. Well, you know, and Dallas probably had an, a wonderful time, you know, having parts in his own movies because he originally started off in life as an actor. And uh, he did, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what he did on theater and stuff way back when, but he always, you could tell just how he was, that he had a lot of the actor in him, and uh, he went on to do things like running workshops with other writers to help them learn how to speak and read their work in front of people, teach them how to breathe, and all these little tricks and tips uh, to make a writer a better reader, which is one of the many wonderful ways he mentored people. Um, and, you know, and I'm going to go down the road here for a second, but a lot of times when you go to readings of writers, a writer can be brilliant, but they may not read out loud very well. And so Dallas actually spent many years helping various, uh, a lot of people we know in the field, uh, teaching them how to actually read their work so that we want to listen to them. And uh, yeah, I love them for that too. <laughs> and that kind of leads right into the thing we're going to talk about next. And I, of course, I don't, I never knew Dallas quite as well as Sephra did, but um, I've interviewed him several times during my stint at Room Org, including a two-year period where I swear I wrote about The Girl Next Door five or six times, so it seemed like we were always talking about that book or that film. And, of course, I've been very lucky to be able to snag his ear and talk to him at various conventions, and he's always, he was always very accessible and friendly and willing to gab about the genre or writing. And that was my personal experience, but that was also one of the things that struck me most in the wake of his death was how many people were not only remembering him on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot um, for his work, but were specifically talking about the influence his work had on their own or how he, as a person, had helped them with advice or mentorship or a writing class during their career. So while he may not have become a huge household name, this, in my head anyways, really cements the fact that he was one of those writer's writers. You know, maybe he wasn't being widely read by Joe Blow horror fan who grabs, you know, the latest thing from their supermarket spinner back in the day. 
but who was reading him were a whole generation of up and coming writers and his work and especially reading, you know, all of these people who are grieving and mourning and just seeing over and over again how many of these folks who are working in the industry today have been influenced by his work, his writing, his books. And in a way, that is really, you know, the final, the final judgment on a writer in a way, you know, do they have any effect on that which comes afterwards? And I think Ketchum had a profound effect, and I think we're going to see that effect for at least another generation, if not two. He was a very generous man with his time, that's for sure. And, um, well, he lived in New York City, and apparently he would drink at the same place every day, and people could just come up to him and talk to him and talk to him about anything. And, and there's so many times I would see him at a convention, someone handing him a story, and he would actually read it at the convention and give them feedback while he's still at this convention. Um, it's just, he was such a generous man. And I remember uh, when he did a festival of fear in Toronto, uh, I don't think he had any idea how big he was going to be up here because he sold out of every single book that he had brought by the end of the day, Saturday and was pretty much just sort of left roaming the show floor for, for the final day of the convention. I, I don't know if you remember that year. Oh, I absolutely do, um, because one of my friends, um, at the time she was staying in the attached hotel to the, to the Metro Toronto Convention Center, and she was friends with him too, and she thought he should have a limousine from the convention center to the hotel because she's from out of town too. She didn't realize it was like 500 feet. So, and Dallas kept telling her, no, no, I can walk it. He's a New Yorker. He walks everywhere. He's a tiny, you know, he's a very thin man. So he, he loves to walk. And she's like, no, no, you must have a limo. So she ordered him a limo to go. If you've ever seen the convention center, <laughs> he went, the limo picked him up and he had to wait like an hour for the limo. We could have been drinking, you know, but we we're all looking out the window at this big stretch limo for Dallas to go 50 feet, you know, <laughs> and he comes up and he's like so embarrassed. But my friend was like so excited that she got him a limo. She's like, he's a star. He should have a limo. <laughs> uh, that was uh, uh, that was one of the most hilarious things I'd ever seen in my life, quite honestly. I mean, I've seen many hilarious things. But should I talk about how uh, I met him? Sure. I mean, that was that was part of the reason that uh, I really wanted you to be part of this episode, because you've known Dallas for like 30 years, which is, well, I mean, that's easily twice as long as I have. So for those that may not know, but then again, if you listen to a lot of horror podcasts, you've probably heard of the word Nikon, um, which is a writer's convention. And way back in the day when I first started going in 1989, I believe, was when I started going to Nikon, it was a private thing. There was no internet and all that. You had to know someone to go. Um, it was kind of exclusive, only in the sense that it's, and to this day, it's capped at 200 people. And it's, it's, grows to be like a family. So, and Nikon stands for Northeast Convention, and it was originally run by a guy named Bob Booth, who was a science fiction writer and a horror lover, and he just wanted to have a party, so he started doing this convention. So my first year um, at Nikon, I went 
the first year and I met Skip Inspector and Phil Nutman and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. The second, so I went back. Um, oh, and how I got to Nikon, just an aside of, um, while we're speaking of people who influenced us, um, Rick Howdala was the one who told me about Nikon and he sadly left us about five years ago. Uh, Rick Howdala has a connection to my family. Um, so we always called each other cousins. And so I'd written him a fan letter and he told me about this magical Nikon place. So anyways, uh, so I started going to Nikon because it's like I went there and people treated me like a human, not as like some little fangirl, you know, gazing at the horror stars. So the second year I went to Nikon, um, it, it was on a university campus uh, in the day it was Roger Williams Univer Roger Williams College. Now it's a university and we're banned from there. Um, <laughs> probably because of Dallas. No, just kidding. <laughs> all of us were all bad. Um, so... Yeah, we can't we can't say <laughs> how many stories in planning this episode we were like, oh wait, we can't yeah, tell there's... that one. Yes. Uh, okay. No, wait, not that one either. Um, and that's not to say that us horror writers are terrible people, but just when you get a bunch of us together and you feed us alcohol, weird things happen. Oh, things that yeah. we maybe don't want to be copping to on a podcast that will live on the internet forever so <laughs> yeah it was a bit fun trying to find out figure out which yeah, stories would stories which stories tell. would make it onto the air tonight so um yeah. let the stories continue yeah so the thing about nikon is there is actually a saying when you go to nikon what happens at nikon stays at nikon just like vegas or world oh, horror oh, so, so so we're sitting in here breaking the nikon yeah. rules no. right now well because i'm just talking about how i met dallas okay <laughs> so i'm setting the stage for this crazy convention where I was just a little newbie. So I so the the convention takes place on a college campus and so when you go to panels they're in lecture halls. So I was coming out of a lecture hall and I I heard some noise and I look up and there's this man in a tree. And I'm I look up at him and I'm like what are you doing? And and he's like I'm climbing a tree. Why don't you join me? And I'm like I haven't climbed a tree in years and I don't want to. I think I was wearing a dress. I usually do at conventions. I can't remember. But I was just like, anyways, I get talking to this guy. He climbs down and it's goes, hi, I'm Jack Ketchum or Dallas, you know, call me whatever. And, and that's how we met. He was a man in the tree. And I always thought of him as Peter Pan. And he is and was like, he was such like meeting him in a tree just nails down exactly who Dallas was because he was playful. He was fun. He was funny. He also had a very serious side, but I'll never forget that looking up in the tree and there's Jack Ketchum. And then, but I had never read Jack Ketchum cause I didn't, cause I'm from Canada obviously. So we didn't get any of his work up here. So then the next horror convention I went to, I raided the dealer's room and picked up red and offspring and devoured them. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe this is that same guy. <laughs> I like my brain blew up. It was brutal. He, uh, yeah, because those of you who haven't read him, it, you will find out. And those of you who have read him, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when it comes to Nikon, Dallas loved Nikon. He loved Nikon so much. We all, anyone who's been to Nikon for many years in a row, 
it's a very special convention. It's much different than uh, uh, your regular conventions because everyone's like a family. Heck, I went to Nikon <laughs> once and I love Nikon. I've been I've been dying to go back ever since. The universe just doesn't want that to happen, but I have all the will. Nikon is amazing. Yeah, especially when it was on the campus because you could go down to the beach and look at the ocean and it was just so cool and eat horrible, horrible food in the cafeteria. And so one of the things that um, Dallas was known for was his imitation of Anthony Newley. And kids these days, you don't know who the hell Anthony yeah. Newley is. None of you know. I, I didn't know who Anthony <laughs> Newley is. That was, Sefra was asking me that before, while we were prepping the show, and I'm like, no idea. He was a singer probably in the 50s or 60s. And the only reason why I knew who Anthony Newley was was because uh, the original Dr. Doolittle movie with Rex Harrison, the musical version, um, Anthony Newley stars in it you know he's the co-star or whatever you know rex harrison is the big star and so and he has this crazy voice and you know just just google and listen to something it, it's brutal so dallas does an amazing anthony newley impression and amazingly enough there's another horror writer who does an amazing anthony newley impression and that's chet williamson so you would have these talent shows where one or the other would be doing these impressions over 30 years and then one day in recent years there was a talent show and they came on as the dueling Anthony Newleys and it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen and yes I have to keep the stories clean because you know we're on the podcast <laughs> but Dallas was always called upon for roasts every year they would roast someone Dallas roasted me even and uh at Nikon again this is Nikon a Nikon ritual uh you know you're loved when you get destroyed by Dallas and everyone else at a roast and uh but he was always I don't think they ever did a roast without him uh, contributing because he has such a great sense of humor and he knows not to babble on like some of us <laughs> like me right? you know he kept short and sweet and he'd say the things and oh, he was great and another thing uh, that would happen at Nikon were sing-alongs people would bring their guitars and would sit around um, it used to be the quad now we have we're at a different place it's still a square so I guess it's a quad and yeah he just sing and he loved to sing because he was an actor he's a singer he loved musicals uh, Into the Woods was one of his favorites. Uh, he and Monica O'Rourke would sing, you know, uh, Bette Midler songs. And uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. Um, one of my favorite Nikon memories was, if you remember Charlie Grant, um, I have Charlie Grant stories too. Uh, but anyways, Charlie Grant is, hasn't been with us in many, 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 many years. And, uh, I just happened to be a fly on the wall one year at Nikon. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Grant and D Dallas were opposites. Dallas was your happy, fun-loving hippie dude and always, uh, and Charlie was kind of crusty and he'd tell you exactly what's on his mind and it often hurt, <laughs> but I loved Charlie. And uh, anyway, so one day I, I was uh, coming out of my room and it's like three in the morning or I don't even know what time it was, but all this, I just caught the sight of Dallas and Charlie Grant running at each other like in slow-mo in a movie from opposite sides of the quad, which was a huge field, like with their arms out towards each other, reenacting God knows what, because I didn't see the beginning of what the hell was happening, you know, and they're running and then they hug and and then, and it, and it was hilarious. But what was interesting was the conversation that came afterwards, which was, um, I discovered they were the exact same age and they and I'd always noticed their opposite personalities, but then they started talking about the summer of love. 
And Dallas was all curious about how Charlie Grant went to Vietnam and Dallas didn't go to Vietnam. And it was very, I'll never forget that night, like just listening to how they talked and how Dallas was like so impressed and, you know, thankful that Charlie fighting for us. And then Charlie's like, yeah, and you bastard, you didn't even go, you know, <laughs> it was pretty, it was like amazing. It was so amazing because I was nobody that like, I was nobody, I was just a little fangirl. And they let me sit in like a fly on the wall listening to this amazing conversation. Now, as we mentioned earlier, much was said um, on Facebook and Twitter about all the advice Dallas has given writers over the years. So I want to ask you, Sephra, did he ever give you any writing advice? And if so, what was it? Well, one of the things I found interesting was how he got started, um, which he, he gives everyone advice. You don't need an agent. Just be your own agent. Uh, and that's what he did. He uh, just got tired of sitting around waiting for agents, and he just sent his own work out and created an agent persona. And that's who, yeah, he aged into agented himself under a pen name and that's probably one of the reasons why he took the name Jack Ketchum to begin with because he had to be his own agent <laughs> I thought it was so hilarious when he told me that because I was so square back then I'm like oh, you didn't oh my god nowadays people are more scandalous but back then like if you were in the publishing industry back then like everything was so very specific and to have the balls to be your own agent was amazing <laughs> but, but wasn't trump doing that around the same time being his own pr dude disguising oh, his voice oh they both lived in new york mm, they took tips from each other <laughs> wasn't that a bit of news at the time yeah yeah oh god trump was always in the news <laughs> oh yeah but he uh like I said, he, he taught classes. He did all kinds of crazy things. Oh, but here's a crazy uh, convention story that um, someone posted about it on Facebook the other day, so I'm not telling tales out of school, how Dallas was the king of the five-minute bottle. And you may ask, what what is the five-minute bottle? Well, that's where we're standing around playing darts at midnight or whatever, and Dallas will whip out his bottle of doers and say, okay, everybody gets to chug in five minutes. And we all, you pass the ball around, round, round till it's gone. And that, that was crazy. And yeah, you know, cause he's, he, when I'm thinking about how I was a mom, you know, and he's like 20 years older or more than me. And here he is encouraging us to destroy our livers by chugging scotch. <laughs> in the middle of the night when we're already trashed. But the thing I saw the most was, I think it was at a horror fight. I probably shouldn't name convention names, but um, there was a convention <laughs> where someone brought a bottle of absinthe and no, Dallas... No, that wasn't a horror find. I was at that convention. <laughs> where was it? Vegas? Was it KillerCon? Where they had the oh, absinthe and I he think, did the five-minute bottle? <laughs> I think it was. I think it might have been KillerCon, yeah. Oh, my God. I thought he was going to die because people were passing it around and, and so many of us were like, ah, absinthe, I don't even want to look at it. And he, like, chugged half the bottle. I thought he was going to die. I was like, oh, my God, Dallas, you're going to die. You're going to die. I think that and was the didn't. first time I'd ever tasted it because uh, we can't get that up here. So. No, especially back then. Yeah, I think it was the second time I'd ever tasted absinthe. The first time being at Nikon when Monica O'Rourke brought a bottle from Spain. <laughs> But in a way, that's a bit of the that's a bit of the uh, the problem with remembering Dallas, remembering Jack. And I, I mentioned this to Sephra earlier: is that 
he was always sort of the life of the party and he always had some alcohol and some alcohol to share so a lot of my memories personally get a little fuzzy <laughs> and are a little fuzzy oh yeah my best memories i don't know what they are <laughs> But one thing to go along with that, when you think about a party god like Dallas, which he was, you know, he would smoke and, and he'd even smoke in the hotel rooms when it was banned. And, you know, he's doing all that. But he'd always make sure everything's really nice and clean and pay the fees and all that. But he was so meticulous, like, because I've been with him at the end of room parties, you know, last to leave, because I'm always the last to leave. And he was meticulous that he did not want the hotel staff to have any stress when they come to his room. He would clean that room so tidy, whether he was just going out to a panel or going, you know, going to bed that night after a room party, which his place would be destroyed because we're all a bunch of freaks. And I'd, he'd clean everything up, priceless. And I, and even when he traveled, he was very meticulous about being courteous to the taxi people and the airplane people. He was very polite. So even though we all see him as this crazy renegade, you know, liked his drink, liked to laugh, liked to talk, and writes the most horrific stories you can imagine, he was so damn polite and kind to, to service workers and would leave good tips. And, you know, and that, that says a lot about a character, too, when, when you treat... Um, you know, staff like your friends. You know, it, it, it means a lot. And I and when I first realized he was like that, it really blew my mind. I was like, "What are you doing? Huh? Well, I can't leave it like this." I'm like, "There's hotel mates. No, 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 no. <laughs> I have to clean this. I'm not putting them under this stress." It was amazing. He threw out all his own bottles and everything. Like, just the room was like you could sleep in it when he'd leave. And then I guess the, uh, going along with that kind of compassionate um, sensibility he had is he was a huge animal lover. Um, he loved cats. He had cats. I don't know how, if he was a crazy cat man with a million cats. I don't know because I didn't know him that well. I knew him from conventions. But I do remember him talking about cats. And he had a sick cat one year. And he was crying about his cat. And then there was a time he actually canceled convention appearances because he wanted to be the one to give the cat the medicine. Uh, he couldn't stand the idea of this sick cat um, having to deal with anyone but him. And so that was also, and so you can, you know, wrap it around to if you've read Red, um, when he, even like when he'd talk about that book, like 20 years later, he'd get weepy thinking about that dog. Um, so he had like such a huge heart and, you know, he's going to be sorely missed because he was so compassionate. And he really is, was that embodiment of horror authors are very much the people next door. It's it's like the darkness in most horror authors' work doesn't translate into their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, you go to a horror convention and it's a crazy party with a whole bunch of creative, like-minded people, and, you know, no one's moping and brooding in the corner. Everyone's just there to have a good time because all, all the darkness comes out in the fiction. Yeah. And what's left is... Well, what happens at conventions? Yeah. Along with that idea, if I go back to my first Nikon, which was one of my very first big horror convention, I'd been to a few little ones. Um, I think one of the reasons why I felt so welcomed 
at Nikon because I'd never laughed so hard in my life. And I came back feeling like a changed woman. And then the next year I met Dallas and laughed even harder and all these crazy people. And I think, you know, like you said, the horror writers get all their shit out in their work. So they, we don't have to brood and be crazy. And I always tell people like, I never laugh so hard. It's like a stand up comedian, stand up comedy when you go to a horror convention, because everyone is so funny. And it, it, and that, I think that's what shocked me when I went to my first couple of real horror conventions uh, was just because I thought it was going to be all scary and brooding and, oh, I'm going to not fit in. I better get all my black clothes out and, you know, I better get the eyeliner on. It's like, no, everyone's just laughing and laughing and laughing and, and talking about stupid stuff like how they won't ride the elevator because they're scared or they won't take a plane because they're scared or they'll, they'll only ride a train, but they'll never take a plane. Like just the crazy stuff. You hear Peter Straub talking about things and all this and we're all just laughing and laughing and it's like, oh my God, you're the king of horror. You know, you're looking at Dallas, you write this horrible stuff but why am I laughing so hard you know and and if you've never been to a horror convention it's worth going just for the um seeing the other flip side of you know the darkness and the light like you said you know it it really brings a balance to the force <laughs> and I really feel like Dallas's presence at conventions is going to be both noticeable and missed. Oh, it's going to be a huge hole because he was the life of the party. Like if everyone's starting to get down, he's kicking it up a notch. Um, one of the last times I saw him was at the Stanley Hotel a couple years ago. He was one of the big guests of honor and uh, I and uh, you know just hanging out with him and and because I had been friends with him for so long you know I just go up and talk to him like a human because we're friends and then other people were like so tripped out they're like oh my god you're talking to him I'm like come on I'll introduce you he'd, he'd freak out if he saw you sitting here crying in the corner go 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 you know and I'd introduce him to all these people and he'd just be in his element he loved to meet people he loved to help people he, he was I don't think I've ever seen him say, no, I won't sign an autograph or no, I won't talk to you in all the years I've been hanging out with him. Um, I've seen other authors do that and editors and publishers. I've seen people be real assholes to fans and, you know, people will come up with a book. They're like, no, I'm not signing now. But Dallas always had time. I never saw him turn anyone away. Now, I may be lying. And plus, he was left handed like me. So I like that, too. <laughs> well... If this episode has uh, brought anything home, I hope it's how much of an enormous presence uh, Dallas, a.k.a. Jack Ketchum, was in horror and how important his body of work is. And he has left us with a ton of work. And now, admittedly, some of it is hard to get because some of it is out of print because of the whole leisure tobacco. Some of it is hard to get because it was published in the small press in hardback and is quite pricey. But um, a little googling and a little searching on Amazon also told me that quite a number of books are available in ebook format, so there's no excuse not to read something, not to check out the man's body of work in some way, shape, or form. And if you want that list of Library of the Damned slash Great Lake Horror Company must-read Jack Ketchum works, here it is one more time. They were Red, The Girl Next Door, 
Off Season, and the collection Peaceable Kingdom. And now I think we should give one more Great Lakes Horror Company Library of the Damned toast to Dallas. For all the stories, all the interviews, all the great advice, all the laughs, and last but certainly not least, all the bone-rattling scares. Godspeed, sir, and rest in peace. Rest in peace, Dallas. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. You can find the Great Lakes Horror Company on Facebook. Just search for us by name and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email us at glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by libraryofthedam.com. The show is produced by Sefer Jerome and Monica S. Kubler. Our theme music has been provided by Leslea Kurvorst.